direct from Montreal, Canada. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this uh, special edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. We're going to go just a little bit on the outside fringes of the uh, music spectrum here. We are going to talk to Emilio Castillo of the band Tower of Power. Now, Tower of Power have been associated with different rock bands over the years, including one of my personal favorites, Huey Lewis and the News. And of course, they are this very, very famous horn section, whatever you want to call it. And they have a new album out called Tower of Power Step Up. And uh, you can get that uh, everywhere. Uh, And also at macavenue.com, the Mac Avenue Music Group, macavenue.com. And uh, we talk, uh, you know, I've I've interviewed uh, Emilio before. Always, always enjoyable. His name came up during my uh, Johnny Cola of Huey Lewis and the News interview. So so do check out Step Up. Do check out Emilio Castillo. And, uh, well, you know what? Here we go. There, There is just so much free time these days that uh, I'm just going to get right to the show so you can start enjoying uh, what Emilio had to say. And so, uh, le voici, as we say in Montréal, le seul et unique, the one, the only. Emilio Castillo. We are speaking with the uh, Tower of Powers. Emilio Castillo, the band, has been around for over 50 years, and they have a new album out coming up called Step Up. As we say in uh, Montréal, bonjour, Emilio. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Good, good. So we we had a chat about a year, year and a half ago. We talked about the 50th anniversary. We talked about what you were doing then. But talk to me about this new album and the importance of making new music because you can go out there, you can go play your shows, you can do what you do, you can throw in a couple of Huey Lewis covers or whatever. Fans are going to have a great time. Why stay creative? Why put yourself through the process of being in the studio and figuring out this track and comping this and flying this in? Why not just go home, relax? And then go do the shows. I could never do that. I don't know. It's uh, it's just an ingrained part of me to create always. And uh, I create in a lot of different ways. You know, I write songs. I produce records. I'm a band leader. I'm a sax player, a singer. Um, you know, and, and all of those things give me a real high. You know, it's uh, there's nothing like sitting down and you know, head jamming with somebody and coming up with a song. There's nothing like taking that song and showing it to a band of great musicians and having them take it to a new level. There's nothing like, you know, making a record and being proud of it and then working it up with a great band and taking it out on the road. So I got to do it all. And uh, that's what I've been doing for over 50 years. I'm not going to stop now. Now is not the time to phone it in. Yeah, it's not. It's not the time at all. So, all right. So, so let me talk to you about your your beginnings in music and your love for music. Because from what I've heard over the years, you have this great story. You and I guess he was your brother. You went into this store. You went to go steal something. You got caught. Your dad runs you back to the store, and he says, "Listen, think of better ways to use your time." And eventually, that leads to you. Uh, getting a musical instrument and and so so take over the story. T- tell me that story at length because I I find that fascinating. Well, you know, really, it wasn't so much the instrument as it was the band. Uh, the Beatles had come out, and uh, you know, 
bands were starting to happen in our little city, Fremont, California. There were all these garage bands, you know, and uh, and it was cool to be in a band. And of course, you know, at 14 years old, you want to be cool. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we wanted to play music. But looking back in uh, retrospective, you know, I realized I wanted to have a band and be in a band. And uh, that's what it's always been for me, for me because... I started on the sax, I, I went to the organ, I went to the guitar, I went back to the sax, I started to sing. It's, uh, I, I wore, like I do now, I wore a lot of different hats, you know, and, uh, but it was always about the band. And at a young age, I, I don't think I had had the band not even a year, my dad said, you have to be the leader. Now, my brother, Jack, was 10 months older than me, so naturally, he was the leader. You know, and uh, and I was like, well, what do you mean I have to be Jack's the leader? <laughs> you know, and my dad says, no, you have to be the leader because you're the one that has the musical talent. You're the one telling these guys what to do. You're the one that has it. You have to be the leader. And he forced me. I didn't even want to be, you know, and that changed my life. You know, and I've been a band leader ever since I was 15 years old. That is great. All right, so, so talk to me about that Northern California scene back in those in in those late sixties, early seventies. You had, you know, the genesis of, of Journey. You had uh, Jimi Hendrix coming down and playing the clubs. You had uh, Grateful Dead stuff going. What was that scene like back in the day? That was such a special time. You know, uh, I'm so grateful that my father moved my family to the Bay Area when. 11 years old. We left Detroit and we came to San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for three months and then we went out to the suburbs to a city called Fremont. And that's when, like I say, the Beatles came out and all these bands were happening. And in the Bay Area, the uh, passion for music and bands and dances and concerts was so strong that it eventually grew into a mecca for the music industry. You know, uh, eventually Bill Graham started the Fillmore Auditorium and all these bands were playing there and bands were coming in from all over the country, all over the world, you know, just to be in that scene. Um, so it was a great time to be in the Bay, the Bay Area. It was really healthy. And for, for me, I was, you know, I was young when that started to happen. I already had my band, but I was a kid, you know, I was 15, 16 years old. And then over the next two years, you know, I got, I got to be pretty good at leading a band and shaping a band. And, uh, pretty soon we went for an audition at the Fillmore West. And, uh, to my surprise, uh, Bill Graham wanted to sign us. And mind you, we were nobody. There were famous bands flying in from Texas and Florida and Chicago trying to get signed to Bill Graham's label, San Francisco Records, or his other label, Fillmore Records. But for some reason, uh, him and the producer, David Rubinson, saw something in us. For one thing, we were a soul band, and all the other bands were like psychedelic and blues and that kind of a thing. And uh, Bill Graham liked that stuff, and so did David Rubinson. They, they decided to take a chance on us, and that changed my life. I got signed to my first record deal, 1969 and uh 
it's been uphill ever since. <laughs> it, it really has been uphill. So as as we get to to step up, uh, how do you sort of approach the album making process? Do you look at it in the sense of, hey, I've been doing this all my life. I'm just going to do whatever I think feels great. Do you think of the fan first and say, okay, what does my fan want to hear and how do I get it to him? You know, is your approach more uh, give the fans what they want or is it more experimental or how do you sort of approach making new music? Well, I won't say that I don't think about the fans. I mean, obviously, uh, we have these rabid fans and they have strong opinions about the music and they know what they like. And so that's important to me. But what I've learned over the years is when we make the music exactly the way we want it to be, they seem to get happy. And so we're not chasing trends. We're not making an album to please the fans per se. As I say, I take it into consideration, but what we're trying to do is please ourselves. It's a very selfish pursuit, you know, in the creative process. I think anyone that, uh, is endeavoring to write and make new music, you know, they want to make it to please themselves. And uh, when you stay true to that, uh, you have better success. At least that's my experience. So that's how we approach it. You know, we decide uh, we're going to make a new record and we go through all the material that everybody's got. And then we talk about it and we filter it down to a certain group of songs. And then uh, I'm the guy that sort of takes those songs to the rhythm section and we, we start working them out. And once we have the rhythm all recorded, uh, at that point, I, you know, I put on a work vocal, some work backgrounds, and I send it to a horn arranger. And he does a, an arrangement for me and sends it to me, and I critique it and carve it up, and he does redoes it. And it's kind of like a, a sculpting process. We keep chipping away, chipping away until the product is finished. Well, and the product sounds great, I have to say. It really is. Uh, I do want to look back at some of the other bands you've worked with, uh, and particularly bands that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, going back to 1976, Sammy Hagar leaves Montrose, decides to do a solo album, puts out an album called Nine on a Ten Scale, which you are, of course, uh, played on, you're accredited on. Talk to me about that experience and working with Sammy. And is it somebody that you still stay in contact with? Yeah. Um, Sammy was with Montrose, and we did a tour of Europe, a famous tour called the Warner Brothers Music Show. And it was six bands. It was Montrose, Tower of Power, Graham Central Station, Little Feet, the Doobie Brothers, and an and a up-and-coming band called Bonnaroo. And so I knew Sammy from the road. And uh, shortly after that, he left Ronnie Montrose and went solo. And he was always into the band. He was always a, a fun guy, a great guy. Uh, he called us in uh, to work with him. And over the years, you know, uh, I've done other things with him. I think one time we did a, uh, a live radio broadcast where he sort of redid some old soul tunes, like, you know, Old On I'm Coming and stuff like that. And uh, he's just always been a supporter of the band and a good friend. And then uh, in the last few years, uh, we don't anymore, but for a time we had the same manager, Tom Consolo, and he was Sammy's manager and our manager, and we're still involved with him. He's uh, actually uh, in charge of shopping our new live DVD, so I hear from Sammy all the time, and he comes around the gigs, and uh, I remember he had that that band with uh, the guy from the Chili Peppers, Chad, the drummer, uh, what was it, Chicken Foot? Yeah, Chicken Foot. 
Chicken Foot with Chad yeah, and Smith and uh, they, Joe Satriani. Right, right. And they showed up at our gig. I, I think we were playing Napa. And, uh, yeah, so Sam is a, a compatriot, you know. And uh, you mentioned Tom. Uh, Tom is one of the greatest managers ever. He was kind enough to uh, introduce me to Sammy once and also Kevin Cronin. So I, I will always love Tom. Uh, one, one of the best. Um, you, you mentioned a live DVD. Now, I'm, I was unaware of this live DVD. So, so talk to me about this. When, when does that come out and when was it recorded? Is it one of these we went back in the vaults and it's Montreux 1975? Or is this something new that the fans can, can uh, anticipate? No, no, this is a brand new product. We uh, celebrated our 50th anniversary, actually a few months early. Our, our anniversary is August 13th, but we decided we would do the celebratory concert celebrating 50 years together on June 1st and 2nd in Oakland, California at a beautiful theater called the Fox Theater. And uh, we sold it out for two nights. We augmented the band. Uh, we had some of our older uh alumni, Lenny Pickett on tenor sax, uh, our former lead vocalist who now sings lead for Santana, Ray Green, played trombone all night. So we had seven horns. I had two extra background vocalists. The other lead singer from Santana for over 30 years, Tony Lindsay, and then uh, our trumpet player's wife, Melanie Cracciolo, who sang on uh, both of the, the, the album we have out now and the one that's coming out. I had Bruce Conti play a few songs, and Rocco played a few songs on the bass, Chester Thompson on the B3, and we had 10 strings, and we filmed the whole thing in HD. And so I'm actually going to L.A. next week to uh, review all the mixes, because they're really close now. We're just going to finalize them. And the video editing is also very close. And then we're going to add some documentary material to make a 50-year DVD documentary on Tower of Power, and it's it should be out in the middle of the year. Oh, all right. I'm looking forward to that. This is this is going to be a great year for, for me. New uh, Tower of Power, new video, new Yui Lewis. Um, I do want to explore the relationship with Yui. Yui, of course, was a part of that scene, the Northern California scene in, in the late 60s, early 70s. He had a band before then. He he was doing all the stuff with Phil Lynott of, of Thin Lizzy. How did you and Yui uh, and the band uh, sort of hook up and, and end up working together and, and performing shows and being on the Four album? And how did that whole relationship blossom? Well, we were sort of at a low point in our career uh, in the early 80s. It was a time when all these new uh, bands were coming out. Uh, they called them New Wave and Punk Rock and, uh, you know, the motels and the cars and The Knack, and Devo. And there was this band called Huey Lewis and the News. I thought, that's a cool name. And uh, I had noticed that name, and I thought that was cool. And we were playing uh, a private gig for... Um, actually, no, it was a public gig at Bill Graham's nightclub, the old Waldorf. And uh, we were debuting all this new material we had written. And uh, this guy comes backstage after the show, and he's just gushing all over me. Man! You guys sounded so good. I'm like, thanks. I'm wondering who he is, you know, kind of a cool-looking guy. And uh, he says, wow, I goes, where'd you get those songs? That's all. I never heard that stuff. That's new. And I go, yeah, we're, you know, we always write new songs. And he goes, man, just 
me and my band were such fans of your band. And I go, oh, what band are you in? He goes, uh, oh, my name's Huey Lewis. And I go, oh, I go, so you're Huey Lewis in the news? He says, yeah, yeah. He goes, we love you guys, you know. And I, I saw your name recently. I said, uh, I dig your name. And uh, so we, we kind of hit it off a little bit. And then we were doing a recording session for someone. I think it was Larry Graham uh, at uh, CBS Recording. And uh, Huey Lewis and the News were across the hall recording. And during the session, they came into our session and they said, you know, we have this song called uh, I Hope You Love Me Like You Say You Do. And we're wondering, we think it would be great with your horn section. And so after the session, we went over there and listened. And our trumpet player, arranger at the time, Greg Adams, wrote out the arrangement. I was floored. They were so soulful. It was like a, a Bobby Womack song or a Sam and Dave song. You know, and Huey had this sort of grit to him, like Otis Redding. And I, I, it was nothing like all the other new wave bands, you know. And I thought it was so cool. And then they had a song called uh, Working for a Living. And we did both those songs that day and uh, just hit it off. Got along great. And so every time they would come down to L.A., because I was living in L.A. at the time, we would go over there and sit in with them and play those two songs. And it was a big hit. And then uh, he eventually did that record, uh, How to Rock and Roll. And uh, it was called Sports. The album was called Sports. It was a huge hit. And he came to me and he said, you know, would you guys consider going on the road with us? And I said, you know, I, I really can't do that. I have the band. It's not like, you know, the horn section is not what we do. The band is what we do. And he says, well, I know. And he goes, and I would never want to jeopardize the band. He said, but, you know, we got a huge hit. We'll pay us some really good money, and uh, is there something we can work out? And I thought about it. You know, we were having a hard time. And I said, I'll make you a deal. If you promise to promote Tower of Power in the show and in all your interviews and allow me to bring the band out to do midnight shows at the big cities, and you guys will come and sit in with us at those shows and announce it at the arenas where we're playing with you, I will do the tour. And he said, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And he was a man of his word. He promoted us in every interview. He featured us prominently in the show. We wound up even writing songs together. And then eventually he heard some unreleased material that uh, we had done. And there was a song Doc and I had written called Simple As That. And he just fell in love with it. He said, I'd like to record this. And he put it on this album called Four. And by then, we had already been touring with them for about three years. You know, we had a, just a, a great, great relationship. And, you know, we would do these uh, midnight shows, like at the bottom line in Manhattan. You know, we'd be playing Jones Beach. There'd be, you know, 15,000, 18,000 people. And he'd say, we're all going down to party with Tower of Power. We're going to sit in with them tonight at the bottom line at midnight. Hope we see you there. The place would be besieged, you know. And it literally resurrected our career. So he's a great friend and uh, just a wonderful musician. We love all those guys and uh, very close. Yeah. And in fact, you, you sort of answered a question I was going to ask. So on the four album, uh, you do have Simple of That, which is a terrific song. So that wasn't a writing session in 1986. This is something that you had sitting around for many years and and was it finished and they just made it Huey Lewis's version or did you have to rewrite it together or 
Because, you know, on that first album, they had that Mutt Lang song, Do You Believe in Love, which they had reworked and, you know. Um, talk to me a little bit yeah, about... No, our, our song had been written uh, in the late 70s. We recorded it in 81. It never got... Uh, the, all that material never got signed. I wound up releasing that material in the early 90s through Rhino. We called it... Uh, it was a kind of a special release, and we named it Dinosaur Tracks. Uh, but he loved it just the way it was. It actually did it just the way it was. Oh wow! So see, as a as a, as a Yui fan, uh, I learned something. Um, have you, by the way, had a chance to speak to him about his 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 hearing condition these days? I haven't spoken to him about that. I sent him an email one day when I first heard about it because I was, you know, I was shocked to hear that, and I just said, you know, uh, Huey, I want you to know that uh, I'm praying for you, man, and I love you, and. Uh, and he, he sent me an email back. He goes, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> you know, but Doc is more in touch with him than I am. And, uh, you know, I, I hear he's doing well. Uh, every so often I hear that, uh, you know, he's able to sing and, and do it. I'm not sure where things are at right now, but uh, that was a difficult uh, thing to hear, you know. And, yep. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I, feel for the, I feel for the guys in the band. You know, it's such a great band. And I've always wondered why those guys aren't playing with all the famous people out there. You know, like Billy Gibson, I think that's one of the greatest drummers in the world today for rock and roll. You can't beat that guy. Sean Hopper, the organist, phenomenal. Johnny Cola as a, you know, just a utility guy playing guitar, singing, playing sax, writing, arranging, phenomenal. You know, all those guys, I, I, I don't know why they're not playing with you know, Eric Clapton and Sting and all the famous people. Well, I, I've always wondered why they're not doing, like, for example, the uh, the Ringo Star, uh, the Ringo, yeah, the Ringo Star All Star Band. That would be great. But let me let me just yeah, get back. Yeah. Let me get just get back to to Tower of Power before I turn this into a Huey Lewis uh, interview because I'm a huge fan of, of of both and I could go down that 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 tunnel. But you were saying that you were at a low point in your career in the early 80s. You were up against all these new bands, the, the, the Flock of Seagulls and the My Sharonas of the Knack and, and, uh, and all that stuff. How do you musically stay alive in that context? Yes, you go do the stuff with Yui, but do you sit back and look at what you're producing musically and say, okay, we have to have our own sort of My Sharona-ish kind of thing. We have to add some more synthesizers? Like, Do you reinvent the band musically or do you just sort of sit tight and, you know, ride out the storm and go, okay, sunny days are ahead, heads down, plow forward. Creatively and music, musically, how did you sort of take that time? You know, as a young man, when you're in that sort of period of your career, you don't have the vision to go, oh, sunny days are ahead, <laughs> you know. You're just kind of doing the best you can, trying to get by, you know. Um, things were changing, you know, drum machines were coming in and synthesizers. And one of the things I learned from Huey was, uh, you know, use the technology that's at hand, but don't let it use you, you know. And so we availed ourselves of, of all the modern technology that was out there, and we still do, you know. Uh, you'd be a fool not to. Uh, but that being said, you know, before we had gone into that low period where I met Huey, the disco thing had happened, and uh, we were with CBS, and, and they were looking at us like a problem. You know, when when you have a record company that thinks of your act in that way, 
you've already lost the battle. You know, so they're coming to us and saying, well, we want to hear some material and uh, we want to look at some producers. And, uh, you know, if you guys could, you know, like redo a old Motown song, disco style, you know, we could probably get you some airplay. And if you could try to sound like the other bands, you know, we could try to get you some airplay. And so, you know, these guys are giving us a lot of money and we want to please them and we want to, you know, resurrect our career, as it were. And so we tried doing some of those things, but it never worked. We always sounded like Tower of Power. Only when we did that, it kind of sounded like a bastardized version of Tower of Power. You know, we did a, a Martha the Vandellas song called Nowhere to Run. You know, just uh, what we learned from that was, you know, for a while, we were thinking, you know, why can't we sound like the other bands? We're cursed. It's a curse. And then what happened is, when things just completely dried up, we lost the CBS deal, got signed to Warner's, then lost that deal, and then nobody wanted us. They started describing us as dinosaurs. And they said their music will never be popular again. It's a whole new generation, a whole different kind of sound now. And they wrote us off. And at that point, we still had a bunch of fans. We were able to play live. And I told the guys, you know what? Let's just make the music the way we make it, man. And let's just, you know, we could still gig. And that's what we did. And uh, what we learned from that, you know, because from that point on, things started to go up again. What we learned was it's not a curse that we don't sound like somebody else. It's a blessing. And we stayed true to that after that forever. We never tried to change ourselves. We're not a band that reinvents itself, you know. You're not going to hear the new hip-hop tower power or the new reggae or ska tower power. We make tower power music and we sound like we sound and that has, you know, overpaid us for years. So so now, the, there was no like grunge to... period. Uh, well, well, let me, and I'll finish on this because we've hit the 25-minute mark, but you said you, had, you were told to embrace the technology, but the one thing about Tower Power is that it's, it's a powerful and, you know, it's maybe the wrong term, but sort of an organic band where people are actually playing instruments. You know, what a concept. But did they say to you back in the 80s, hey, go get yourself a Lindrum and just program everything and blow some horns over it and off. I mean, how, how, because it takes out the soul of Tower of Power if you're computer. I mean, how did you sort of deal with, we need to use technology, but we need to be an organic, real band? Well, by the time we were in the 80s, for one thing, nobody was telling us nothing because we had no record deal, so we could do whatever we wanted. But I noticed that the sounds were changing on records, and I liked that big drum sound. And what I did was I triggered it. I had my drummer playing, so it was a real drummer, but the sounds, I, I augmented them, you know? And that worked for the time. But eventually what happened in the late 80s is the term retro happened. And everybody's telling me, wow, man, like, uh, you know, Robert Cray came into being, and Bonnie Raitt was bigger than ever, and all this, what they called retro sound, you know, just down to bare bones, man, just real music. And they're going wow, now that this is happening, you know, uh, this is a great time for you, huh? And uh, I guess you're really happy about this. And I used to tell people, honestly, I don't think about it. I just make the music the way I make it, you know. And, uh, you know, when I was saying earlier that we were referred to as dinosaurs, you know, pretty soon the dinosaur moniker went away, and then they were saying, you're an institution, you know, and then a few more years down the road, you're a legend, you know. So it's a fine line. 
between a dinosaur and a legend, but we just keep making the music. And when we make it the way we want it to be, we're happy, the fans are happy, and it seems to work. It, it does work. And you're right. You go from new band to classic band to legendary band. And, and if you stick around long enough, you become iconic band. So you're working, you're working your way up. Uh, Emilio, always, always a pleasure. The new album, of course, uh, Step Up, sounds great. Uh, I've been I've been enjoying it, and I recommend folks to uh, keep an eye out for it. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci, thank you. My pleasure. Always good talking to you, Mitch. Merci, sir. Have a good day. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.